Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. It's so great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. We've got a great lineup this week for all of you. And it starts out with today. Uh, Just to give you a sneak peek before I say hi to Benny and Olivia is I had a very short interview with the gentleman, Norman Bacall. And I had a very short interview with him on a very broad and important conversation. And I went through that interview probably longer than I needed to and then decided I've got to bring him back because his book, one of several, Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success, just hit me smack in the heart. Because what is it that we know about success that we're not talking about? How many success coaching things have you gotten that you didn't get before? But what happens when your career, and you don't know it, is in your hands. We're going to talk to Norman about that. But let me say hi to both Olivia and Benny today. How you two be? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you, Dr. Pat? I'm good. I'm kind of excited. Benny, how are you? Same here. Ladies first. Olivia had the the conch. (laughs) (laughs) So I looked at the, I, I had a call with Ratika this morning, one of our fabulous new hosts. And I I planned a meeting for next week and I went to next week and guess what? Next week is June. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Was that a surprise? Was that just me? You've had a lot going on in the last, I think you've had a lot going on. I still have a lot going on. Yeah. So it's, it kind of got jumbled in there and it is. Yeah, but it's all good. You do a lot and we appreciate you. Yeah. (laughs) Benny. What? You can tell Benny and I've been together like it's now going to somebody said it's 18 years. I'm not I'm not good with the math. Whatever it is, it's we're up a there. long time. Yeah, we're up it's there. It's a long time. So here's what I woke up with today getting ready for Norman. Uh, Norm, I think I call him Norm. Here's what I woke up with today thinking about success. I never thought in a million years, not in a million years when I was sitting in my corporate job staring at my boss that wanted to fire a woman in a very second downsizing in the United States, second one. Exxon was first phone company. And I will say phone company because that's what they were then. They were pretty much second. And I remember staring my boss in the face as a downsizing that was supposed to be so equitable. It was supposed to give people the option, you know, that had years to, t- to leave and then give them a year of pay. People for early retirement. And I remember looking my boss in the eyes and she said, you've got to fire Nadine. Like what? Yeah, she's going to be on the list to let go. And I said, what? I said, wait a minute. This woman has 29 years, 11 months service. So you're going to let her go in December. So I said, you have a PhD, do the math. 
one month of May for, and she said, yeah, you're gonna, you, she's going to be on your list. I said, why? Why is she going to be on the list? I mean, this woman gets a full pension. What are you thinking? Now, I don't know if you people out there have had corporate jobs, but when you're staring your boss in the face and you are the head of the organization to implement this downsizing program, and you say to your boss, I'm not doing it. Guess whose head count gets taken? So today, we're going to dive deeply into how we are faced with choices that we wouldn't be faced. But this has been just off for me, moving into a new place, almost like a new start, fresh beginnings, the finish of our technologies. And then I'm going to go here. I'm really going to go here, Benny, Olivia. I'm going to go here. The spiritual meaning of 2021's first eclipse is about transforming your mindset. This is the 2021 eclipse happening on the 26th. It's a total lunar eclipse in Sagittarius. It's the first one of the year. Feels a little bit of intense, especially for me. But here's what they said. This is the mark in a period of a major change. Because this planet, this particular sign revolves around communication knowledge and the spiritual meaning of this eclipse. But here's what it's about. You've got to transform your mindset. And I'm wondering how seriously important that is in the conversation with Norm today. In this world where we are looking at people that are being asked to go back to a normal that does not exist for them, that are now being asked to forget everything you've done in the past year and 18 months, the way you've set up your work at home, the way you've done the things that you've done to keep this organization going. We now need you to go back to the old way. Norman Bacall is a retired attorney and the founder of Toronto Law Offices. And by the way, you know, he has built and leads the firm. He became widely sought of expert in tax law. But besides all of that, he is someone that understands what it means to be successful, especially in the realm of, let me call it media, Hollywood, Warner Brothers, Board of Directors, Lionsgate, producing the Hunger Games. He was in the middle of that. But what happened upon retirement? He took up writing, authoring. Today, you're going to hear about what is it about this incredible approach to success and professionalism that transcends the old normal that people want us to go back to? Norm, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Dr. Penn. It's great to be here. So <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this, but l let's just talk about this for a minute, because we're going to talk about some of the biggest challenging that young professionals have today. But I would say that there are challenges that are about to come up that people have not even thought about. I got a call from uh, somebody this morning, um, and I, I coach women. And the story is almost the same, Norm, over and over and over again. It's as if nothing has happened in the workplace. Zero, zero has happened in the workplace. And now we just need you to come back. And by the way, probably going to cut your pay. T let's talk about the dynamic state we live in 
end how what you have prepared for us not only will accommodate that, but will help people rise up. And I know I'm not telling you something you haven't heard before about what's happening right now for folks, right, Norm? Or or, or am I giving you news? <laughs> uh, no, no surprise. You can't you, you can't move, you can't breathe, you can't open the television without, uh, you can't open your computer without being assaulted by it every day. And I, I think to approach this, I'm actually going to step back 18 months. Thank you. You don't mind. So going no, back. I, I'd love months, you to do that. I, I was having this conversation with my mother uh, right around the time of the first, uh, of the first lockdowns up in Canada. And she was saying like, is, you know, it's, I, I can't imagine what it's like. And I, and I can remember it. The, the notion that I would go outside and wear a mask, forget it. That I'd wear a mask inside, ridiculous. Um, that I would, uh, you know, I, I still remember the last lunch that I went out for, I think it was in March, uh, now, what, 15 months ago. And uh, thinking, I, I just, I, I can't, I couldn't begin to imagine the life I was about to start leading. And I think that was the point. It was unimaginable life. And it didn't happen on, on in one day. And in, in and I think in the United States, it's been a lot more acrimonious and a lot, a lot more two-sided in terms of wearing masks, not wearing masks, how you behave, social distancing, things like that. Whereas in Canada, it's sort of, it, it's we slid into it uh, more slowly. But within a few months, I was doing things that were unimaginable uh, to the point where, because of the slow rollout of the vaccine in Canada, uh, you know, we're still locked down in, in, in Toronto and think nothing of it. Yes, there are a few hundred people out on the weekend protesting in the streets, but out of a population of over 3 million people, there are 200 people out protesting on a weekend. And so, so my point is that this life 15 month, months ago was completely unimaginable. That yeah. this normal that we are now about to come out of, and I think you're coming out of it faster in the States than we are, uh, was, was unimaginable. So what I'd like you to do, and, and perhaps what I'd like the audience to do now, is uh, do what's also almost unimaginable and and think about what life might be like if, if not three months from now, then six months or a year. And I think what we are going to, to find out is that we are surprised that uh, it's not so much going to be a new, I mean, people are talking about a new normal, and I'm not quite sure what that means. But I think uh, our ability to adapt to changing situations uh, occurs a lot faster than we can imagine it. So what this new normal is going to be, I don't know. But I was speaking to a friend of mine, mine in San Francisco last night who celebrated his 65th birthday. And he was saying, uh, and he said it point blank, he said, it's as if COVID never happened. Right. Other than the schools and you know the unions, uh, teachers unions basically putting their foot down and going back. He said, but other than that, you wouldn't know what we've just come out of, which is in some respects it's shocking. Uh, on, in other respects, it just shows how adaptable we are, even though it's hard to believe we can be adaptable. So I think that's our that, that's the starting point for all this. Yeah. And then the mechanics of uh, how you get your brain to accept it is, and how you deal with the anxiety of change uh, is, you know, what, I, what I'd be happy to talk about. Yeah. What I've written about. 
Well, and one of the things that I do want you to talk about, because, you know, when I'm looking at this, the book that you put together, and for those of you just tuning in, the book is called Take, Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success. Norman Bacall joining me here today. You know, and I went back and I, I reread this and, and I thought to myself, this is what we need, right? This, this is what you need as a person. This is what is great to learn. This is also what organizations need. And when I thought about this and I thought about, yes, this is the way to take the steps. I also know that if you are pushing a boulder uphill with all of the things you just talked about, right, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to be your best. And I want to ask you about this. Because I've been watching it all along. There have been service providers out there all along that didn't take a backseat, right? We're one company. You know, we've been able to set up. All, I had to buy larger office space just as overflow just in case to make sure you've got the nine feet, this and that. Because service is everything to us. Where is this tension from your perspective between success what some companies are asking of their employees now and the ultimate goal, and it's got to be the ultimate goal, service. I don't know how you exist in the marketplace without being way above the curve. I don't know. Tell me, Norman, am I close or where am I? <laughs> I don't know if, I, if, I'm, if, if like I'm on track or not, but I've been thinking about asking you this question today only because I've had three separate circumstances that showed up with people thinking they're going back to the same job and, and to be honest with you, getting cuts in pay that would just make you cringe. So help us out with where we are because ultimately – isn't it about personal success? Yeah, I, I can't talk about uh, pay cuts and things like that. But no, but, you know, I have a, I have a book where chapter one starts with, and and literally the chapter is called "It's All About Service." And and really, in terms of personal success, the the pretty much the only person you can control in this world is yourself. Mm -hmm. The only area where you can actually exercise complete control, uh, and, and it's also our greatest challenge, is that space between our ears. And when you accept that, and when you, if you can accept that, uh, that the anxiety of change is being driven inside your head and nowhere else, and because it's being driven inside your head, you can actually control it and deal with it, uh, I, I think that's, your, that's the starting point for everyone to move forward. I mean, the one thing we've discovered over the course of this pandemic is a remarkable resilience uh, in the business community to adapt for survival, all revolving around how do we continue to serve all these customers, even though we can't see them face to face. And that's why we've seen a, a dramatic change in technological advances. And those changes are going to, you know, th those changes are going to drive the future. Those changes. Mm -hmm. They're here with us for the future. It means greater access to people with less travel, less displacement, uh, which also means more time. Um, whether and to what extent going to the office is going to mean going five days a week and how long it's going to last and uh, whether businesses can actually save overhead 
by encouraging their workforce to spend part of their time at home with the, with the great new technology we have and the access to yeah. science that allows you to allows us to sit face to face looking at each other uh, as if we're sitting across the table. Uh, you know, that's part of the remarkable change and the people who adapt the fastest to it, the people who are able to say, okay, how do I build that uh, into my service offering are gonna be the people who not only survive, but the people who are gonna jump ahead and succeed. And it's out there, I mean, that's a great thing about America. It's, you know, the American dream is if you pick it up and you have the courage to run with it and you're not afraid to fail and fall flat on your face, uh, you could conceivably beat everybody. You know, and that's why I wanted to talk with you today because, you know, there are three things that come to mind. I want to I want to also step back a minute. One of the things that was extremely important to, you know, when I read your book the first time and then I got to chat with you is the, exactly what you just said. You have to be willing to take those risks and, you know, be willing to see sometimes when you're not successful at things. I mean, I had to go through exactly what you said in my first seven years of doing this. I, you know, I never thought in a million years that. I would look at some parts of my life and realize that that risk may be seen as failure, but had I not done it, wouldn't be where I am. So I want to talk with you for a minute about how you've come to look at success and the way you look at success, because there is something we are not really looking at anymore, and that is success and soft skills. Can you talk to that and that philosophy that you learned and how important it is even today? Well, I, I think we start with the premise that uh, success is not the product of only making great decisions and being right every day of the week. Yeah, I learned through building an organization that success, and this is looking back on it, I mean, I, mean, I, I built a quarter of a billion dollar business uh, over the course of 25 years. And it, when I look back on it, I figured about one out of every four decisions I made was wrong, which meant three out of four were right, which you know might have gotten me, you know, got, would it would have easily gotten me into the Baseball Hall of Fame batting seventh. <laughs> but uh, and uh, and I still remember I don't remember which who, which business leader was that said it, and that is you know if you're if if you're better than 750, like if you're not making any any mistakes in your decision-making, it only means you're not making enough decisions, you're being too conservative. So it's ultimately, it's about uh, taking managed risks, pushing, always pushing yourself to try new things um, and being prepared to say, okay, that was a mistake. And I think success isn't so much a product of always being right. It's much more a product of how do you deal with those mistakes? How fast do you handle them? How long do you let, as opposed to how long do you let them fest? You know, you, you hire a toxic personality into your group, you know, how, and because they're, they're great producers, how long are you going to leave them there? I mean, it's your choice as a, as a boss or as an organization. Uh, but ultimately, you know, once you've discovered you're on the wrong path, get off it. Just get off it, figure out, you know, cut your losses, figure out how to deal with it, accept responsibility. And here are two words. I had a lot of trouble learning. 
But these two words changed my life. I also changed my marriage. They're called, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I was on, I still remember a phone call with a client uh, where uh, he, he was loaded for bear uh, on the phone call. I'd done something that had really upset him. About, I let him rant for about three minutes. And finally, at the end, I said, Jay, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Yeah. And, and there was like a complete silence on the other side of the phone. And, 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 I, and I suddenly heard him laughing. He said, you just took away all my fun. <laughs> you know, I, I love that you brought that up. And, you know, there is this ancient, let me just call it ancient, Norm, Norman, if I could. This is ancient guideline in the corporate America that I worked my way up in. There's no, no crying in business. Right. That little story. I mean, how many times have you heard you see no crying in baseball? Okay. Okay. But that doesn't mean there's no humility. And there's nothing more powerful, I think, than what you just said. And yet I think it's one of the most difficult things for, let me just generalize, professionals to learn that it's okay to say that. Um, but it's isn't not a this sign of weakness? It's actually a sign of strength. Yeah. And isn't this part of, you know, when I look at you, the approach and the way you're working with folks and, you know, people that are professionals and coming out of the gate and, you know, looking for that success track, um, we're teaching them things that perhaps they're not going to find in that MBA book, so to speak. You know that book that we all got that book, um, big fat book, and, and you don't see it in there. Um, but isn't part of this helping people look for and find those influencers, those people that can guide them to help them decide who am I? I mean, didn't you have to do that? I mean, I shared part of this with me where I looked in the mirror and I was unrecognizable and I had everything in the material world you could possibly want, right? Full collie big house, 4.6 acres, a sports car, a truck, an executive job. And I, I was getting ready to walk out of the house, Norman, one day in my beautiful foyer. And I looked in the mirror and I just couldn't recognize myself. I forgot the girl from the Bronx and what she learned about people. Talk to me for a little bit about the influencers, who the people are that could guide us, and who have been the influencers for you? Uh, it's an interesting question. And when I look back, I think that the people who had the greatest influence on me were the people who had no idea they were having the greatest influence on me. <laughs> they, were, they were the people who uh, came up with a little piece of advice that didn't mean much at the time they said it. Uh, but when I look back, it had a huge impact on every critical moment. We have those decision moments in our life when we can go, go direction one or go direction two, and everything that's going to follow is going to be a product of that decision. And it was something my, in fact, it began with my Uncle Harry. Okay, my Uncle Harry was a, actually a fairly well-known pediatrician in Montreal. And uh, 
he was telling, he was on his deathbed. He was dying of cancer. And I was only, I was all of 18 or just about to turn 19 at the time when I went to visit him. And he said, Norm, he said, I want to tell you two things. One, I never wanted to be a pre pediatrician. I wanted to be a gynecologist. But the opening for me came in pediatrics and I just decided to take it and the proverbial rest is history. Uh, and he was quite famous. He even won the order of the, of the British Empire for inoculating the troops going over to Europe and uh, from Canada in, in World War II. Uh, and I figure inoculation is a good time to talk about vaccines. Uh, but it was a radical idea at the time. But he said, Norm, he said, here's something I just want you to keep in mind. Your career, uh, you have a choice. You can, you can set a goal for yourself and, but imagine that your career is just a boat you're putting in the river uh, and you have a choice. You can take the current and let it go when it takes you and grab the opportunities that interest you as, as you go by. Or you can pick a spot on, on the other shore, up current, upstream, and use all your energy trying to get there and never get there. He said, so that's your choice. And Uncle Harry's River uh, became effectively the entire motto for my career. It was, you know, take the opportunities as they come. You know, it's not, you know, your, your success isn't going to be a product of waking up one morning with the next great idea that's going to change the world or, or now as an author with the next great storyline that I'm going to write that's going to win me a Pulitzer Prize. More likely than not, it's going to be uh, a slow building process of seeing opportunities and saying yes and seeing another opportunity and saying yes. And, and that's what Uncle Harry was trying to tell me. I figured out 40 years later. And but the, it was the saying yes, as opposed to, oh, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know yeah. if it's successful. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of afraid I might fail and people might laugh at me. I mean, that's, and, and that's the, no, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. And, and I think if, if you interview enough people who've had extraordinary careers, they're the ones who say, I'm going to try it. Yes. And that was my career. I, you know, I started out as what I'd call a boring tax lawyer who could give a speech and <laughs> die before going into, into an interview like this. And slowly but surely, my skills built on the backs of all kinds of new things. And, and, and I saw them all as adventures. And some of them were, you know, in fact, were complete failures. And, yeah. and if you don't live through those, you don't go. I love this. You know, we're going to take a short break. But before we do, Norman, please let folks know how they can get a copy of the book I'm referencing, but there are other books as well, how they can find out more about you. Because when we come back, um, I want to talk about two things that I think are really so significant. But in your book, they're connected in different places. One is about communication. And the other one is about building resilience and how these two peas in the pods, although they don't really look like they have anything to do with each other, can be enormous, enormous game changers, enormous. Let's take a short break, but before we do, Norman, how do we get the book? You've written other books. All right, uh, easiest way to find out everything I've written because I write both nonfiction and fiction. Yes. My fictions are, are, are mysteries. Uh, just go to my website, Norman Bacall, and the greatest challenge is how to spell the last name. It's B-A-C-A-L dot com. And you can find all my books there. 
Uh, or you can look me up on Amazon. Uh, if you just go to Amazon and look for uh, Norman Bacall and Take Charge or Norman Bacall and you'll see all my books. And, uh, uh, and that's, that's yeah. the best, best way to get it. And when we come back, why why I so wanted to talk with Norman for all of you so you know is because Benny would say it like this. Back in the day, there were skills that mattered. When we come back, we're going to talk about how skills that mattered. Trust me, this is a number now, for real. 40 years ago, how those skills had been abandoned and how they're now showing up in some of the latest surveys being taken about the youngest generation to enter the workforce. And you will be shocked at what they are selecting over money, over benefits. But Norman has been talking about this because he understands the value of it. And this is something we all need to learn again. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Welcome to Soul Activation Podcast, a world-class broadcast of insight and inspiration with the renowned healer and coach, Suzanne Alexandria. In this series, she dives deep into the magical sea of you, to the place in you that's ready to activate. Tune in live every second and fourth Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Hi, I'm Patricia McNair, host of Divine Guidance with Patricia. And I'm here to help you live a more authentic, spiritually connected life. Join me every first and third Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Being who you are in everyday life is the key to unlocking soul wisdom within that our whole self already knows. Get ready to embrace your spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, your whole being. Discover your gifts and strengthen your connection to spirit. We will explore earth guidance, divine truth, and love, past life lessons, and so much more. So listen in to Divine Guidance with Patricia and join in your personal adventure to triggering, opening, validating, and being all that you are. For more information about me, visit divineguidance.earth. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. 
tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit burnbrighttoday.com. Welcome back, everybody. It's so great to have all of you tune us in and turn us on. Norman Bacall joining us here today. When I got his book, Take Charge, um, this was a really short interview that I was honored to be able to do with him. And time has passed and I've invited him back. When you open this book, and this is for me, I recommend this book for those of you out there that are thinking, I'm starting in a career. This is what this is what I want to do. Even if you're in a job, just the way I was, in a job that you think, man, I'm in this job temporarily because I'm going to school for something else. This is the kind of book that you open up and nobody really has told you. You know, they haven't told you the importance of service. They haven't told you the importance of communication in the way that Norman does. But this isn't just about reading. What happens here with this book is you go through it and you go through a, a conversation about how to reveal yourself. This is actually in his book. And you go through that. And then Norman says, so how is it done? And you, you're able to take this journey with Norman, great stories in this book, by the way, just great stories in this book, but they're real stories. They're stories and examples of how we go through life. So here's where I want to go with this right now, because communication is a two-way street, but also there's a link between, in my mind, communication and resilience. So here's the deal with the survey. Survey was done by a firm that surveys people coming out of school. And they do this because they're a recruiting firm. So they're working with companies, right, that are saying to them, go hire these people. We need these people. They're, they're like, go hire the cream of the crop or whatever, whatever they say. I did recruiting for a while. I couldn't stand it. But it's an important job. Here's what they didn't know what to do with. They do the survey of generation whatever they were recent graduates. This was about a year ago they did this, 18 months before the pandemic, actually. And they asked them, what do you want in a company? You're going out and you're looking for a job. Like, what are you looking for? They gave them like a ton of options, right, to look for. Security, a flexibility, work hours, the whole thing. Norman, you know the range, right? So do our listeners. What did they pick, though? Overwhelming. And the reason I attached on to this is because I did a study similar, but not with graduates. I did it with older population, not older in age, but older in tenure population. The answer comes back the same. So here's what happens. Their answer across the board, right at the top, we want to work for a company that understands empathy, empathy and compassion that really knows what respect between people are. Empathy, compassion, respect. Nobody saw that coming. But you did, didn't you, Norman? Uh, I'm not sure that it's that I saw it coming so much as I always, you know, that was that was always my mantra. And and it's, it's kind of interesting because it, you know, if, if I go back to 1989, I was starting a new business 
in uh, Canada's largest economic market uh, against the advice of all kinds of consultants who, who, who said, listen, you can't possibly survive against the giants in the industry. There's no way you can compete. If you, you know, unless you're prepared to be a small unknown brand, uh, which is fine, if that's what you want, go ahead. And I concluded, and I was all of 33 years old at the time. So, so as a result, maybe I didn't, you know, I didn't have that far to fall. <laughs> uh, although I did have four kids and, and a huge mortgage. Um, but uh, what, what occurred to me was uh, I take the philosophies that mattered to me and I would start, start a social experience. And remember, this was, uh, I don't know, what is it, 35 years ago, almost 40 years ago. And I said, all right, I'm going to put a premium on people and I want a work environment where when you begin your commute in the morning, all you can think about is getting to the office. So that was it. That was, that was the, uh, that was the theory. That was the philosophy. It's what I lived by. I wanted to be excited to come to work every day. And I said, the moment I stop being excited, that's it. I'm, it's, I'm done. And in fact, I lived by that because the moment I stopped having fun, I retired. Um, and it, and it was about, it was all about that. It was about finding meaning. And what I discovered was that from a marketing perspective, and I didn't understand it at the time, it took me 20 years to figure it out, 20 years and all success, <laughs> but it became our marketing mantra and, and people gravitated to it. And if you interview the people and the firm tragically collapsed year after I left management, we'll save that story for another day. Uh, but it did, it, it, that is what triggered my writing career. Um, but, and, and I think I've just lost my train well, of thought. Well, I think what you're, I mean, where we're going with this is, you know, when you go through what you've gone through and we're talking about this, something else pops up that maybe isn't on the checklist of what kind of attribute do you need to have? I mean, the whole idea to do this massive study and to have across the board, right? I mean, these people were not coached into picking empathy, compassion, and respect. They it's picked a generational that. thing. It's a generational thing, and it's different than your generation and my generation, where it was work was about work, and if you wanted to have a if you wanted to have a life, you, you go home, go home and have your life. But you're here to work. Whereas we've got an entire generation who is now equating uh, meaning in their life to meaning in their work. And the people running those businesses who are in their 50s and 60s, uh, they're not from that world. They don't understand it. And, and I think there's a general assumption that people are driven by money. And what I discovered through my experience and through, my, through the, all the recruiting I did over 25 years was just the opposite. And it was that people, uh, people were not going to necessarily come for more money. They weren't going to leave because they weren't earning exactly as, as much as they, they hoped, but they would stay and they would be extraordinarily loyal for reasons they could never understand because they felt a connection. It, 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 it's like the, the gravity holding us all on the earth. Yeah. It's the gravity that holds organizations together. It's not about how greedy you are. It's about how connected you feel. It's about feeling that you know, and, and I remember at points in my career, I said, I could never leave this place. Why? I can't explain it. But the loyalty just runs too deep. Yeah. And oh. if you can create that in your employees, if you can create that loyalty, if you can create that, uh, 
that feeling that, oh my God, I could never let Norm down by leaving. And I won't even take a call from a headhunter to leave because that would be treasonous. I mean, if you can create that, it's it's not because you're, you're paying your employees more. It's because you've created some, some something in their brain has created this, this loyalty as a virtue. And why? Because their work experience is bringing meaning to their life. I'll tell you, we, we used to joke about the fact that we all had bell-shaped heads. We used to joke about that, but that was a very powerful meaning. And when you have an organization whose culture is embedded in loyalty, I mean, not dysfunctional loyalty back then, but when the, game, when the rules of the game changed and the repeal of the psychological contract of work started to occur, that particular value which was so important to the success of organizations it's the thing that kept a graphic artist to stay an extra five hours and then get in his or her car and drive the presentation to the vice president who's at the airport right it's very much about having a workforce where everybody believes and it doesn't matter what level you're at at in the organization where you come to work in the morning because you save yourself I make a difference here. And because the CEO at the top of the chain has has sprinkled that fairy dust all the way down. You, and I, I used to have this, uh, I, it became a bit of a joke, but with, uh, with my receptionist every morning, I'd walk into the office in the old days when we used to go to the office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, and, and I'd say, you know who the most important person in this firm is? And uh, he or she would look at me and smile thinking I meant me because I was the CEO. And I said, no, right. no, the most important person here is you. And they'd look at me, the first time I said it, they'd look at me like I was crazy. How's that possible? And I said, because you're the point of contact with the clients. And if they get on the phone or they walk into our reception and they see somebody who's happy and loyal and excited, they're gonna get a feeling they're in the right place. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, I learned that lesson the hard way. What did you say? You learned from your mistakes. I learned that lesson the hard way. And then once I learned it, what happened was things shifted. Um, and we make judgments about people. But what you're talking about is an aspect of communication that I believe is so important. And I believe without it, you cannot build resilience. And that's why I picked communication and resilience from your book. Because there are other things we could talk about today. For example, none of this really works if you really have poor project management or poor detail management or no management or you don't know where your emails are. I mean, we could talk about that. That we're assuming you get your act together and you figure that part out. But learning the kind of communication we need, the one where you say, I'm really sorry. I've had to say it more times than I can even begin to imagine. But doesn't that foundational energy create a level of resilience that goes beyond the profit line? Well, for sure. And, and it, it begins with your starting point. I, th I think so many of us believe that communication is about the message that we are sending out. And, and which puts the primacy on me, the speaker. Whereas in fact, the best communicators are the ones who listen the best. 
and, and they pick up on the cues and they, they say, oh, this is what you mean, or, oh, this is what you want. I can do that. But you can't do that if you're not listening. And, and sometimes, you know, and you, you mentioned the, the connection between resilience yeah. and communication. And, and for me, you know, I'm not going to pretend that wasn't the hardest lesson of my life. <laughs> and how many times people said to me, you know, I, I, I talk about listening, but I can't tell you how many times people walked into my office and said, you're not listening to me. And it wasn't necessarily what they were saying, but it was sometimes things that I was doing that suggested the message wasn't getting through. And those are the moments where you have to be able to sit down and say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, what can I learn from this? And it's not so much about me failing because what's the, the, the normal reaction is, I get my back up, I get defensive, and now we're fighting. Whereas if I just step back and listened a little more carefully, my resilience would kick in and I can say to myself, I'm, you know, I'm above this. I can deal with this. I can deal with changing. I can, I will try and listen harder and better. And suddenly you've opened a communication route and it, it went for the people who work for me. It went for the, it went for my clients. Like my, my, my favorite clients were the ones where I would, I would sit there and I listen and it's the same now. And I find the same is exactly because I've become a consultant. Uh, to small businesses, to medium-sized businesses, to professionals, and they'll outline their problem for me. And at the end of almost every single one of these coaching sessions, I say the same thing. I say, you know what? Your question has already outlined the answer and you know what it is. You don't need, you don't need me to tell you what to do. You know what to do. You're just afraid of it. Yeah. You know, one of the things that really was really struck me in listening to you speak is I get asked more recently, people are interviewing me and they asked me questions about my interview style and type of questions I ask. And um, they asked me how I learned that. And it wasn't until about five years ago that I figured it out. I didn't really study it, but I stuttered. I stuttered as a teenager, you know, stutter, right? And if you watch Joe Biden, you can pick it up too. If you watch me, you pick it up. And this weekend, it was really one of those situations where I was trying to do something with a couple of people and they were asking me questions and I, I didn't answer. And they kept asking me more questions. And it was so reminiscent of being a teenager. And what I realized was I was trying to figure out what they were asking, what they were saying. Because when you stutter, you know you're not going to answer that first question. Never. Because people will wait an average of eight seconds for you to answer. And if you don't, they're on to the next version of that question because they think, right? And I find this interesting how this childhood defect now enables me to be able to put pieces of information together. But I may take longer to get back to you on an answer, Norman. And, you know, sometimes those are the things that we have to look at in ourselves, things that perhaps were defective that become our greatest gift. How does that play out for the people in the market today? Well, you know, 
I think people see it as a weakness not to have the immediate answer. Whereas I think what people, clients certainly respect more when you say, if you don't mind, I just want to think about that before I respond. Like your question, your question on its face sounds simple, but actually it's so deep. You tell somebody what they told you is so deep, you've, you've just gone up 100% in their books. You don't have to answer because you've, you've, you've told them what they want to hear. They're smart. So that's part of it. I mean, the other, the other part is, um, and this is a, another psychological problem we all have, and that is we hate silence. The, the notion when, when, and I tell people when they're speaking, you know, when you're practicing speaking, after you've made an important point, pause and count to three in your head. Because in that silence, you're actually having a conversation with the person at the other side. So they can process what you've said. But we're in, we, we hate the silence so much and we're in such a rush to get all our ideas out. We're not giving people opposite us the time to process. And if you leave that time and if you take your time, uh, your your message will be heard a lot better. And, and frankly, even in, I, I had one lawyer in particular because you had a stutter. I had a, like silence never bothered me. So it was an advantage. But I, I would sometimes sit there in a conversation and let 10 or 15 seconds pass uh, only because I had nothing to say. <laughs> and, and a lawyer who I spent many years negotiating against said, finally came to me uh, 20 years later and said, Norm, I always hated negotiating with you because you always won. And the reason you won is because you just sat there and didn't say anything. I had no idea what you were thinking. And as a result, I rushed in to keep talking and I basically gave, kept, kept giving away the points I wanted only because I was afraid of the silence. Mm. So I mean, that, 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 that's a gratuity, but the, the bottom line is uh, you, you need to fertilize the earth of your relationships by just sitting there, being quiet and listening. Listening yeah. is much more powerful than speaking. Yeah, Norm. First of all, I want to thank you for today. There are so many things that uh, you've put in this book as a guidepost. And by the way, you know, what you've done is put this in a way that people can not just understand it, but if they're drawn to something, they will be able to really find out more. They'll be able to call you. Um, but one of the things that I, I think I, I attached on to earlier, which is sort of for me, it's been a lesson. And it's a short thing in your book. And I think it applies across the board. It, I, you could probably substitute anything in it. It says, if you're drawn to technology, master it. And I remember this because I was drawn to create a network that was based on technology that worked for people. But I'm not a tech person. I don't claim to be but you have to take yourself to a mastery level, whether it's technology, whether it's food service, whether it's, you know, working in a salon, you know, if, if that is what you're drawn to master it. And I want to thank you for including that in the book because it's so important for us not to just dream, but to take the action we need to the dream. Thank you for today. How do we find out more about you? And of course, masteries sometimes need coaches and help. Tell us about that too. 
Right. Uh, well, you can either find me on LinkedIn if you're out there. That's that's the best place. Uh, or just go to my website. And in fact, unless you're in your car right now, take out your smart device or your computer. Just type in my name, Norman Bacall, B-A-C-A-L.com. You'll find out all about me and there's a way you can connect with me. Uh, I respond to every email I get. So and just, well, don't think, why would he call me back? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's important to say. And also give us a sort of uh, review of some of the other books you've written as well. Sure. My first book was, uh, was actually a career memoir that was driven by the collapse of the firm. And I decided basically to write a three-part case study. It's called Breakdown. Uh, part one is uh, how you go from being a student to a partner in a professional firm. Uh, part two, how do you build an organization, not just a law firm, but what are the principles uh, that I believe in, in terms of organization building? And three, and this is a, a unique perspective, which is what are the elements that hold an or the glue that holds organizations together that you can only analyze when the whole thing collapses. So that's something I went through. Um, and my, uh, and I've written two, uh, and that book is called Breakdown. I've also written two mysteries, both uh, Shakespeare modernizations. One is Odell's Fall. It's a modern Othello set in a Manhattan cutthroat law firm. And look out for that one. Um, uh, my, my hero is African-American and uh, who crosses the racial barrier by uh, intermarrying with a, the daughter of a white Alabama senator and everything goes downhill from there. <laughs> and uh, my latest book is called Ophelia and that is a modern day Hamlet. And, uh, and my, my lead character has just lost his father to a mysterious death and the father's voice in his head is convinced he's been murdered. And uh, will, you know, will he step up and fight the murderers for control of his father's drug company? And o Ophelia is the lover who uh, <laughs> is secretly uh, protecting him from, from the forces of evil. Wow. Um, boy, I'll tell you, you know, we are in this place where certainly we're understanding the importance of creativity. But, you know, every time I talk with you, Norm, it's kind of like I'm reminded that there is this essence within us all, you know, our ability to create, our ability to live in the world of possibilities, but even more important, our ability to overcome whatever potholes we step in and then turn to somebody like you to help us get to that next place. Because I don't know what I don't know, especially about where a vision comes from and where it wants to go. Norman, thank you. Personal message, what do you wanna leave us with today? Well, first of all, I'm honored to be here and it really, it really is my honor to reach out and hopefully touch your audience. And, and I'll leave you with the, la the, the, the message that has always touched me and that is um, the people I owe the most to were the people who I didn't, who did not know they were impacted in my life. And I always felt I should pay it forward.